This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. Joining me as always is the president and co-founder of the Reformed African American Network, Jamar Tisby. Jamar, what's going on, brother? Hey, man, you know, it's all good. We are, as we record this, getting ready to gear up for the spring semester of doctoral seminars. So this is, for me, the the, the last calm before the storm. You're on location. So that's why it sounds like Jamar's in a closet. He's he's somewhere off in a it, closet on campus it's, hiding. It, it's my graduate study, Carol, and it literally is a closet. Many of your closets are much bigger than this place. You out here working for the people, though. You putting it out for, for past the mic. <laughs> for the people. It's all good. I've got a door. I've got a door, so I'm fine. <laughs> we want to thank you guys so much for reaching out to um, us and giving us feedback. We have received a lot of great feedback over the past three episodes that we have recorded just this year in 2017. So if you have not had the chance to check those out with Andy Crouch, also a recap and a reintroduction of who we are and why we do what we do. And then also the last interview we did with Dr. Micah Edmondson, which was also excellent. Please go to iTunes or Satchel and check those out wherever podcasts are played and keep writing us great reviews. And Jamar, I want to read a couple of these reviews, man, because All right. I can't believe people like the, like the podcast as much. You know, it's still crazy that people really <laughs> make this a part of your daily routine. This is nuts. Um, but one in particular, um, Finding Mercy, this person said, the only podcast I make sure to catch every episode, they cover timely material in a relevant and theologically sound way. Thank you so much. Sarah J also says, if you care about the church or racial reconciliation, and hopefully you care about both, you should listen to this podcast, Thoughtful, Educational, and Paradigm Challenging. Thank you guys so much for leaving these reviews. We have so many reviews that are new that we could read, but we can't get to all of them. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a podcast. So thank you guys. Continue to do that. That is helping us out. Okay. Last or a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how you hadn't seen Creed. You just got on Creed. You late to the party. <laughs> just bringing up old stuff. Listen, man, it's still relevant. I'm going I'm to I'm give you another recommendation here. And I know you're, in, you're about to head into your doctoral studies again. So I know you're a busy man. But if you get the chance, you got to go see Hidden Figures, brother. You got to go see okay. Hidden Figures. I okay. know it's probably going to come out on, on Redbox. Don't make it a year before you see <laughs> Hidden Figures. But what was Word. it? Was it, was it two years? Was it a year and a half? I don't look, know, man. It was, it was just over a year. But not, look, I'm trying to go see it. I'm not, I'm not deliberately waiting. So I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I, I, I learned from my mistakes, and I'm hearing you. That's good, brother. I hear that's, you, that's and I see you. <laughs> You know what's crazy, man, is Hidden Figures tells a story of um, a group of black women. It's not just three women, but there's three women at the heart of it who mm. were responsible for being some of the, the greatest mathematicians in the uh, NASA organization. And particularly around the time we were trying to send a man into space to orbit around the Earth. And 
man, I did not even know any of this. I didn't know these names. I was not familiar. Mm-hmm. I didn't know any. I didn't learn about it in high school. Didn't learn about it in college. This is all yes. like brand new to me. And I'm sitting yeah. here like, man, we were doing calculations that sent someone into space. We were doing. We were part of this penultimate moment, this ultimate moment in American history. Like this is huge, you know. And it, it just and it nobody came, ever told us. Nobody told us, and it again reinforces this idea that if we don't see representation of ourselves in prominent places. There are so many people I've talked to that said, man, my child wants to go into, into mathematics now. Or my child's like, I could do that. Mm, or I could yeah. do that. Or I could go into space. Or I could do this or do that. And it's just... One of our previous guests, Nicole Baker Fulgham, uh, put out a tweet after she saw the movie. She took her, her daughter. I don't know how old she is, but she's um, her daughter went home and was building a, a NASA headquarters out of Legos. And for the people manning the the headquarters, they were, they were black girls figures and so she's just she was just as a mother and as a black woman so impacted by that moment that her her young daughter had seen this uh representation on the big screen and now it became a vision of what's possible for her child and that's just that's that's massively important it actually i think we'll probably talk about that more today as we as we get into our topic yeah absolutely man so definitely go check out hidden figures and it's weird because you know a lot of people in the previous couple of weeks, we're wondering how well it would do in the box office. And uh, in the previous week, its first week, it actually beat Rogue One, which is the new Star Wars movie. Wow. Which we haven't had a chance to talk about. Bo's going to have to come on. <laughs> no, I've actually that seen that one. Oh, I saw that one wait, like opening wait a, weekend. Wait a, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yes. Hold up now. I've so seen you're it. Telling me, you're telling me that you went to see Rogue One first weekend. And that's, that's fine. You know, we Star Wars people here. You know, we don't start that people. I, Listen. I had space in my schedule. And we talked about this before. You like to go see all these heavy movies that are so emotional, make you cry at the end. I'm like, life is hard enough as it is. I go to the movies to laugh and be entertained. Although Rogue One, you know, exactly. that, that was kind of heavy too. No <laughs> There's no light movie. They didn't, they didn't warn a brother before it. Listen, listen. Bo is gonna get upset that we talk about Star Wars, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into that. But I will say this: um, you went to see this movie, first <laughs> weekend, but it took you a year anyway. Okay, I'm I'm gonna get the on logistics that. worked out. <laughs> but here's the thing: okay, not even not even getting to Jamar's schedule, but I will say this: that it beat Rogue One in its first weekend, which is a huge feat on I think 2,000 fewer screens, and obviously Rogue mm. One's been out for a while. But that's really big. And then it also was number one in its second week and actually earned more money in its second week than it did its first week. And now a lot of things go into that from Dr. King weekend um, and then the positive word of mouth that it's getting. So that's just an awesome testament to the power of these stories being made and how we support them can actually lead for more of these stories being made. And so I hope there's a gang of movies that come after this yeah. that really show this representation and there are always these little movies, but sometimes we don't always hear about them. And right. sometimes we don't, they don't get the advertisement that others do. So check out Hidden Figures. And I think, you know, from, from my perspective, I don't have kids. It's a pretty safe movie to take your kids to as well. And it's great representation for them. 
Well, you know, and and we need to bookmark this topic because there have been conversations around this being another sort of golden age of uh, black artistry, particularly on uh, the big and the small screen. So whether you're looking at shows like Atlanta um, or or movies like Hidden Figures, uh, yes, sir. There's just this resurgence um, in in the broader public view, right? It never went away. Black art has always been there, but there's this um, there's this renewed attention toward um, black artists, particularly in in terms of film and acting and even stage productions as well. So I think that's a really salient point about um, how we're thinking about and viewing race these days because what these films and 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 stories are trying to do is give a a more well-rounded picture of who African Americans are, how they live, uh, the triumphs, the tragedies, and not just this singular picture of slavery or you know civil rights struggle, but the the many nuances and, and complexities that just go along with being human and you having to be African American as well. And a lot of people would say, leading into our topic for today, that a big reason for that is because of the previous eight years where we have had hmm. a black family in the White House for the first time in our nation's history. Obviously. You guys know we had to talk a little bit about President Obama, his legacy, um, and we'll probably get into more of this as the days and the months elapse, but we're coming to the end of the Obama administration. Eight years, a very interesting eight years and two terms for a lot of people who are processing race and really introducing people to the processing of race for the first time on a mass scale. So Jamar, thinking back to when his presidency started in 2008 till now, 2017, how have you changed and shifted? What has the Obama administration taught you and what has it led to as far as personal revelations in your life? Who personal revelations. That's a loaded question. You don't have to get, you you know. have to get into it full, full, but no, that's a loaded question. I mean, so, so I think the, the way I... I'm trying to work through uh, the memory of the presidency, which is another interesting topic, right? There's what actually happened and there's what how we remember what actually happened. And so I think that's going to be really crucial. It goes along the lines of Martin Luther King Jr. We recently um, celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. national holiday and there was a lot of information out there that was like it MLK was not who you thought he was, you know, we remember the quotable King, all these one-liners and great speeches, but, but, but we, you know, in some circles downplay his, his radical activism and uh, uh, his pursuit of social justice in, in some arenas. And so I think the Obama presidency is going to be similar. There's, there's going to be sort of the quotable Obama, um, this, this national figure who in many ways people will look back and remember him positively and sort of highlight those things. And I think there will be another segment of the population that really mainly looks at, at what they didn't like about him or his failures as a president. And there were failures, there were mistakes, uh, as, as, as there are in every presidency. And so, you know, we're going to have to be very assiduous about putting down the facts and, and remembering this moment now, because it's going to change over time. The last thing I'll say, and we can get into this in more detail, is for me, I try to differentiate between his political legacy and his cultural legacy. Um, obviously, they're both intertwined, but looking at the, the the legislation and the policies enacted under his 
leadership and administration is one aspect of his legacy. But then looking at sort of the historical moment of this being the first African-American president and and he's winning two terms and he's diversifying the White House racially and ethnically, that cultural moment is in and of itself uh, a, a whole train and a whole path of legacy that you can follow as well. So that's a long non-answer, but it's a, it's complicated. It's complicated. Well, well, leading into that, what makes it so complicated? Like, why is the Obama presidency more complicated than the previous eight years before him or the previous eight years before President Bush? What yeah. makes this particularly complicated and complex to unpack? especially for Christians. Yeah, that's good. And I'm eager to hear your insights on this as well. I think it, for me, it's a couple of factors. Number one, it's just this idea of, of intersections. So there are a lot of different factors and different identities wrapped up in this one man. So he's an American. <laughs> let's, let's get that on the table. Uh, but what he represents as, as an American. As no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, American. Jokes, jokes here. Um, but what he represents as an American being biracial, right? Um, so so I- I- these two major racial groups w- between which there has been massive conflict brought together in this biracial man who, because of the way we interpret and construct race in the United States, because he's brown-skinned, has experienced life as an African-American, even though he's biracial. And so that's one aspect of it. I think another aspect of it is is we're in the information age. And so the role technology has played, particularly social media, um, in in this presidency is is it wasn't even possible for for most presidents, and then uh, for him to have had these eight years and to see all this technological development, all this transformation in the way we gain and um, interpret information, I think is another part of what makes his president presidency so complex. Um, yeah. So, how how are you interpreting the complexity of it? Yeah, I think you hit the points. I mean, it shouldn't be any more complicated than any presidency, right? It shouldn't be, but it is because we live in a racialized society. Like the very nature of the society we live in makes it more complicated, and the fact that, as I was going to say as well, he rose in the time of social media. The amount of scrutiny and the amount of attention that is given to every single decision or every single comment or every single clip that could be taken out of context or could be in context and could be construed different ways to different people has led to this hypercritical analyzation of who he is and you know what he isn't and what he means and what he doesn't mean and the secret underlying agendas. And if you think about it, it's very interesting to see that in both this election and the previous um election in 2008 in particular, I'll say that election, it's like we we put a microscope on a particular candidate. And the candidate who had the microscope on him the most, as far as magnifying everything that he said, didn't say, did, didn't do, those are the candidates who won. And I think we have to really take a step back and analyze, is it because these are the candidates who people are are wanting and desiring, or is it because our media attention is so coalescing around them that they become ingrained in our consciousness 
that it kind of leads us to vote for people or back people or unintentionally elect people who we may or may not agree with or who we might just be moved because of the movement of the actual media to highlight these people. You know, it's it's just a really interesting idea. Like, are we legitimately electing candidates or are we kind of being moved and maneuvered by media powers that be to highlight one particular candidate? So it's very interesting that right. we see that analyzation. Um, but I, I think also it really it really leads to the complication of what is qualified, what is not qualified, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. And I think in President Obama's case, more than any other, he faced heightened scrutiny about his expression of blackness and whether or not his expression of blackness was actually approved in the mainstream. And it led to a lot of questions that I think released the tension that we have now just simply due to the fact that we don't know how to analyze blackness and we don't know how to process that at all in any way, shape or form in our American culture. And it really brought that to the light and it really revealed that. I don't think it was because Obama had this grand scheme. I think it was just, we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to look at blackness and critique it while at the same time appreciating it or even understanding its expression. Yes, I think you're right, Tyler. And it gets back to your original question about complexity and particularly in regards to Christians. And and, and it ties in with this whole, we don't know how to analyze blackness. And so you're going to have to unpack that a little bit for us. But what I hear you saying is, um, in terms of the complexity, on the one hand, I think pretty much Everyone who's reasonable, right, uh, it, it celebrates the, the the racial progress that this represents, that a black man could uh, aspire to and attain the highest political office in the land of the economically and, and uh, militarily most powerful nation in the world. And so that does say something. We cannot downplay that. There are people who were literally killed not long ago uh, in the lifetimes of people who are still alive today uh, for, for simply pushing for voting rights and basic civil rights and, and to within a couple of generations see uh, a, a minority of, of, of any sort, uh, but particularly a black male, get to this office is massively significant. And so I think the complexity is we want to celebrate that, but then getting back to his political legacy, he will – I believe be remembered as one of the most politically progressive presidents in 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 modern history and and for many people even that even that is interesting right because he is a politically progressive candidate so to speak but then the politi- politically progressive wing of the left leaning party which is the Democratic Party has heavy critiques for what he didn't do yes so it's, it's yes. weird like we have he's politically <laughs> progressive according to where we currently sit and stand right. But a lot of my friends who are, you know, very far progressive, I'm not a Democrat, but I'm an independent. And I'd probably say I'm not a cons- as conservative as my other Christian friends would be, but That's I right. am more conservative than my progressive leaning friends right. are. And so they would say he hasn't done nearly enough. And right. then the people on the right would say he's done this crazy amount of progressive movement that has irreparably harmed the country. And I'm trying to figure out where's the balance of this? You know, is he truly this progressive candidate that we think he is, 
or is he progressive according to our own ideals? You know, that's good. That's good. And I think I think that's helpful. Like we need to we need to be transparent about where we're situating ourselves on this podcast. And and, and again, we are not the voice of, of, you know, black Christians or anything like that. Oh um, far from it, man. And, and Tyler might come from a different perspective than I do. But in terms of uh, where we reside on this branch of Christianity, it is it is pretty theologically conservative. And um, as has happened throughout U.S. history, theological conservatism has typically for particularly for white Christians, theological conservatism has typically translated into political conservatism. And so for me personally, I'm steeped in these institutions, in these fellowships, um, in these friendships even. And so from that situation, from that situatedness, uh, President Obama looks progressive socially and politically. However, I hear what you're saying, Tyler, because from from uh, a more socially and politically liberal or progressive side, there are going to be many people who didn't go far enough. And I think that's what you saw between uh, Hillary Rodden Clinton and Bernie Sanders uh, leading right. up to exactly. the the election is there were there were these sort of Two, two strains of liberalism or progressivism uh, going on. There was kind of the old school establishment Democrat, which Clinton represented, and there was the even more progressive wing of um, the Democrats who, who have long been um, frustrated by the lack of progress. And so Bernie Sanders was their standard bearer. Uh, and then you get President Obama. And, and where, does, where does he fit? <laughs> I think what we realize as time elapsed over the two terms is he's just, he's always been this pragmatic politician and he's always been someone who pushes forward, not just the party line, but does incremental things, plays the long game. Even how he's talking about the transition of power to the next president, he's always talking about, we'll be fine. We zigzag, we go around, but we're headed to the same course. We're headed to the same place. And I think that throws off both narratives that throws off the narrative of, you know, kind of a leftist politicians and the leftist progressives who would say that, you know, this is the worst thing that's ever happened, but it also kind of pushes back against the rights critique of leftist politicians who would say, well, you guys are overreacting. You're this. And I think President Obama has for now, while he's been in office, as he's leaving office, stayed pretty even killed about this, which has been frustrating for some, weird for others. Um, it's just been it's been hard. It's been hard to reduce down. But I want to get into why the black community interprets the Obama presidency different and the Obama family different than some of our white conservative brothers. Why does the black community, and this is a weird question which we'll get into, but why does the black community interpret this differently? That is a that is a, a, a more complexities upon complexities here. Um, I think one of the main factors in how African Americans interpret this differently from whites and interpret it differently from other African Americans, I think central to those tensions is the idea of solidarity. This is for me a critical concept as we think about race in America, because as a minority group. We have a lot more in common in some ways than we have different. 
I think in particular, if you think about, if you want to say something like the African-American community or even the black church, what is the tie that binds? What is, what is, what is that singularity that you can say that in some sense there is a community? To me, that's our history. Uh, because no matter where you came from, if you were dark-skinned in this nation and considered black, then you had particular considerations and perhaps a different particular personal experience that puts you in league with other people who share the same race. And I think from that very minimal standpoint, there is this sense among African Americans that we're in this together, that the rights that we've fought for, we had to do shoulder to shoulder. But the complexity that raises is, as we present this sort of united front um, against oppression and for different forms of justice, that doesn't mean we're any less varied or different than any other people group. Um, and so you see there are internal differences which may not often come to the fore uh, because we are typically united uh, for certain causes. I think we're seeing a fracturing of that as uh, for many reasons, as African-Americans become more enfranchised in certain ways, certainly not fully enfranchised. But as we've had more educational opportunities, more access to, to wealth and politics, you start to see some differences. And then, of course, a, 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 a public figure like President Barack Obama um, is going to highlight some of these things. I mean, he's a he's an Ivy League educated lawyer. He is the cream of the who crop. Went to a black church. <laughs> who went to a black church, right? And so you've got all these these different worlds colliding, even within the the African American experience. And I think you're, you I think what we're seeing is you have some folks, like you were saying earlier, who say he did not go far enough to fight for black rights in this highest of political offices, and, and they're disappointed with what he did. And then I think there are others who say, we got a black man in office. He was authentic to to his experience, uh, authentic enough, and we should celebrate that. And where there's tension, I think you start to see some of that conflict. Yeah. And I want to get into, I think, personally, part of the complexity, which is how you've learned theology, specifically for Christians, is really going wow. to impact how you view someone oh, like boy. Obama. You know, so I think it's really important for us to remember that historically, when we say the the black community or the black church, like those things aren't monoliths. So we don't think all in the same vein. We don't have all the same mentality or the same solutions to the problems or issues that we face. And we view the problems differently as well. How you've been discipled in theology will impact that. So eight years ago, I'm in a predominantly white context as far as education. So I grew up in a predominantly white context in as far as education. My church context was black slash multicultural, but my father was discipled in a predominantly white context completely. So he went to college in a predominantly white context and then served in an all white church as you know, on staff, as an assistant pastor, and then branched out and planted a church. And that church became majority black with, at one point, a very heavy multi-ethnic uh, presence. So it's weird even how he would talk to me about blackness, even though I was in a predominantly black setting, was far different as far as spiritually, was far different than how other black parents would teach their children about race and about its implications. So for me, as I've grown 2008, 
I'm staunch conservative. Why? Because I've grown up educated in thinking along right-wing conservative lenses, even in how I process Christianity, how I process the truth, what I find to be most important, how I process political issues. So my tears are different because I'm not necessarily in this super impoverished area. And while we weren't rich, we weren't impoverished. And because we weren't impoverished, my perception of things was far different. And so now, eight years later, I have a different lens because my influences have changed and how I process theology has changed. And I'm starting to work in the inner city with with urban young people who predominantly go to public schools. And a lot of them don't have the best circumstances and their parents don't have health insurance. And all these things are are, are playing into the, the pot. And I think we have to take a step back and say where we are learning our theology will typically... And how we're learning our theology will typically impact how we view someone like a President Obama and how we view fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, whether whether they view him positively or negatively. So yeah. this is just how it is. Do we are pro-life. I am pro-life, Jamar is pro-life. What has been salient in the black community as far as the most important issues that face the black church? hasn't necessarily been abortion. And that's not to say that abortion isn't an important factor within the black community. But what we would say is the ways in which our white brothers and sisters emphasize abortion is is different from how we would emphasize abortion because, because our, our pressing issues and our pressing matters have been more complicated than just one or two issues. Man, yes. Are we, are we going to make enough money to, to feed our family? How, how do we make ends meet? Are we going to be able to be educated? Do we have health care? Um, if I go to college, can I afford to put my son through college? Like that's just, and so when people say, I'm getting ahead of myself, but when people say, yo, just vote along these lines, we're like, well, there's a thousand different things that we're voting <laughs> along. Not that's just right. one issue, right? Like we've never been that one issue person. And at the same, te- same time, I'll say this. Is that even within my church currently, let's be clear, there are black Trump supporters and they are very vocal. Like, let's Mm. be clear about that. Like, Mm. that's not something that doesn't exist. There are black conservatives who vote along the Republican Party line straight up and down. And they believe Mm. that the Democratic way is a harm to to the black community. But yet they still coexist together in the same body on the same leadership team don't think that that's not possible. It's just different for us in how we perceive these things. So I think that's a major factor in in how we view that. And I guess kind of teeing up to that, what do we say to the people who say, man, President Obama hasn't done anything for the black community? That's just the number <laughs> one thing that my, my, my friends, my conservative friends are like, what has he actually done for the black community? Like, how well, do we process a loaded question like that? It's massive. Um, let me go back a little bit just to just to add a footnote to everything you were saying. Um, number one, I think what you're, you're raising is crucial. So in our tagline for the Reformed African-American Network, we say addressing the core concerns of African-Americans biblically. And that's that's that that phrase core concerns, which which I first heard from Dr. Carl Ellis, Jr., that's critical because it gets at what you're saying. So the core concerns for folks in the racial majority, there's going to be some overlap between all people groups, of course, right? Like, like you know, in, in a certain sense, lots of people wonder how they're going to pay for college and all that. But the reasons are different, right? The reasons are different um, when there's historical economic 
inequality because black people, A, were owned and could not own their own things. That's a very different history in terms of uh, uh, struggling to make ends meet than, you know, being a new immigrant or being a down on your luck or whatever it might be. So, so we want to, and this podcast is right in line with that. We want to address the core concerns of African-Americans, which is to say that there are certain issues and certain um, reasons for issues uh, that are different across different people groups. And so that's a very important point to make. And it comes through very clearly as we're looking at politics. We're not, you know, it's it's harder to be one or two issue kind of voters as a racial minority, which gets to a second point. Um, uh, a, a scholar, uh, an African-American scholar recently uh, put out on social media that it makes a difference how you get to the gospel biblically. And so he was making the distinction that when you get to the gospel, as African-Americans have done, when you get to the gospel through Moses and the Exodus, that's a very right. different path than if you get to the gospel through Paul and the epistles. And so the Old Testament and Old Testament pathway and it is more narrative, uh, it's more comprehensive. Here you've got an actual real life liberation from slavery, which obviously is going to resonate deep, deeply with African-Americans who have been enslaved in this nation uh, versus, and, and really not pitting them against one another, but it's a different route. Um, Paul in the New Testament and the epistles, a much more propositional approach to uh, issues of, of salvation and and it takes it takes sort of more of a um, theological digging to get from from there to some of the social issues that are pertinent to African Americans. Again, not to set up an artificial dichotomy. All it is to say is African Americans, particularly through the church, black church experience, have have viewed uh, theology much more holistically than matters of individual salvation. Uh, they've looked at community uplift. They've looked at solidarity. They've looked at securing of rights. They've looked at real physical liberation as well. And so that's some of the differences that, that I'm finding with our um, uh, white brothers and sisters who are, who are also Christian as well. Um, so then, right. yeah, that was just a, just a, just a footnote to what you had said, that's but you asked footnote, another man, question. That's, that's far more eloquent, far more eloquent than how I put it. But, you know, I'm your angry translator, so you know how it is. Uh, but nah, so, so what do we say? President Obama oh, didn't yeah. do anything for the black community. What do we say to that? He ain't do nothing, he ain't do nothing for us, Jamar. I mean, like, what, what are we expecting a single man to do? Um, I think looking at this, with our spiritual eyes, so many of us put our hopes in a president or a political party to make the the sort of transformations that we really interpret deep down as 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 a form of salvation, and so we prop these individuals up as saviors, which there cannot be anyone alongside Jesus Christ, and so these these individuals become idols. Uh, so so. If you set up anyone as an idol, whether that's a spouse, a child, a professor, a politician, a president, you are setting yourself up for massive disappointment. And I wonder if some of that is is factoring in so that some people saw the first African-American president and said, finally, we're going to get full enfranchisement as human beings and as citizens in this nation. And they set him up um, 
to do a politically way more than the president can do. Right. Um, the president has a lot of power, but one single person can't change everything or fix every wrong. Um, and B, you're setting up a person who is flawed and fallible to be, you, you want him to be perfect and you want him to fulfill all your dreams. And as long as we're looking uh, for that person on a horizontal level and not, not looking up to the Lord, we're, we're going to be set up for disappointment. So that's a, you know, that's your very spiritual answer. Uh, but there are, I think, you know, more kind of social and cultural factors at play as well. And, and to me, it still gets to that, that, um, it, you know, there's, there's, there's a spectrum of folks in the African-American community politically in particular. And so the more progressive wing is going to say he didn't go far enough. And the more conservative side is saying, you know, we're going to celebrate everything he did do. So I don't know what, what, what are your, what's your take on, on how, how do you respond to African-Americans who didn't say he did, he did enough? Well, I think the question, I typically get that question from um, my white friends. And the question is always weird because eight years ago, they would have said, you're just, or, you know, I didn't personally vote for President Obama. So they would have said, black people are just voting for President Obama because he's black. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like this injection of racialization, which assumes, which is something that conservatives would never say about Ben Carson or someone else like that, right? It's very interesting why they believe that black people would primarily vote for left-leaning politicians, black politicians, simply on the basis that they're black, like not the qualifications, just that they're black, which is, is, is interesting. And then to eight years later say, what has he done for black people after criticizing the idea of them voting for people based upon him being black? It's, it's weird. Like it's ironic to ask that question, right? Like, so you're critiquing our racialization or our, what you perceive as racialization of the election process while also racializing the election process. Like, it's just, right. it's like, how does this even work? Like, and so it's, it's weird for me. Like, it's all in how you view it, his accomplishments. So some people would say, um, and I think this would be a very fair critique that President Obama did not necessarily raise upward mobility for youth employment in particular in the way that he should have. And I would say, I think that's a fair critique. You know, they would say he, he didn't necessarily hold the top percent of people who have gotten away with financial crimes accountable for those financial crimes, which advantage the top tier system versus the bottom tier system. I think that's more of a progressive critique, but a fair critique, right? Um, I also think that at the same time, while we look at these statistics that would say black unemployment is still twice as high as white unemployment in America, we would also say that black unemployment has been cut in half <laughs> in the past eight years, which is something we have to take a look at. And we would say, well, yeah, but black unemployment, it was cut in half. It's far lower than what it was in 2007. Like it's far lower than what it was in 2008 when he took office. So I would say, man, it's hard for me to look around and see black people who desire jobs in my area, in my faith community that can't get jobs. Like that was an issue previously and it's not an issue now. Like it's rare for someone in my faith community to not have a job. But previously mm. they were struggling to get jobs. That's mm. just my perception. That's just how I view it. Another thing is personally, again, this is how we view the issues, is that personally the Pell Grant expansion has helped thousands of young people get college degrees quicker than what they could before. 
So the Pell Grant expansion, if you're not familiar with it, allows for kids to be, and I don't know how much of this took effect while he's in office versus what will take effect, but according to what I understand, it allows him to tap some of those funds during the summer and not just in the spring and fall semesters so that they could receive educational advancement during that time, get college degrees quicker with less debt. I know people personally who use Pell Grants, and I was just talking to a group of our young adults last night at our church, and I was looking around, and and it is rare to see young adults in our context, in our church, who have not gone to college, who do not have post-secondary education, and who do not have degrees. That's like a choice. They decided to go into a trade or they decided to do something else or go into the military, but it's rare to see, ah, well, we, we didn't go to college. Like college graduates are normal now, <laughs> like in our context, oh. which is, which is weird. If you think about it 50 years ago, you wouldn't have said that right, like 50 right. years ago, you would have said, man, well, what are you guys doing with your lives? And, and particularly black women, black women are, what, Ooh, they're one, killing one the game. Right. What what one study has said, they are the most enrolled in college class by gender and ethnicity in the yeah, entire country. I think I saw something They're like in that. College more than, yeah, more than any other other uh, ethnicity and gender is. That's amazing. More than any other class of people. That's insane. That's like I'm looking and I see multiple black women in our context who are owning their own businesses and who are entrepreneurs. And so one of the things that we can't take, take uh, we can't discount is what people have called, you know, the quote unquote effects, the unintended effects of something happening. Like some people have said there's a Ferguson effect or there's a whatever effect. There is also, I believe, an Obama effect to see two college educated black people in the highest places in office in the world right. that promotes and inspires achievement and class and dignity and self-worth just by the representation of seeing it. Just like what we were talking about earlier with Hidden Figures. If you didn't know it was possible, you wouldn't have done it. But because you know it's possible, now you go out and try to do. And then I think the final thing I would say is without the Obama administration, there wouldn't have been the attention that was drawn to racial injustice, particularly in police brutality, and the studies that have continued to come out in major cities in America that showed that there is corruption. And even in Ferguson, it's not a major city, but in cities in America that once investigated reveals the corruption inherent within the criminal justice system, within law enforcement that still needs to be addressed. Now, while I do not believe he did everything he could do in that regard, I do believe that there was at least the attention that was placed upon that so that we could now see we're not making this up Black and brown people have been disproportionately addressed and attacked by, and sometimes antagonized and harassed by, a section of police officers who probably should not have that badge. And so now we can address that, right? Um, and right. so those are things that I would say he's done. Now, I have major critiques, like the drone strike critique is a major critique for me. What about the image of God in these people? Um, while abortions have plummeted, I do believe that President Obama has not taken a, a pro-life stance at all in, in, the, in the scope of his presidency. I, I believe that is a critique that I would have. And there are other critiques that I have for President Obama. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I'm not just sitting up here saying his praises, but it's a complicated question when people say he's done nothing for the black community. Right. Man, I didn't... Listen, 
I, I'll say this very honest. I didn't have health insurance before I got married. Yeah. So when someone's talking about including someone into health insurance, it was just a lot because of some conditions I had previously. So now to be able to have health insurance, it wasn't because of the ACA. But thinking through that and thinking through other people who have health insurance now, man, that's that's, that's a big, a big deal. deal. I don't know. That's I mean, that's just a big, big deal. deal to me. I'm just saying these are all things that we put into the pot <laughs> as we talk about President Obama. So you can tell Tyler's thought a lot about this. It feels very strongly. Um, let me let me just. I love it, man. It's just this a is mix good. Of well, you know, so, so as we're talking about, you know, African Americans who think President Obama hasn't done enough, I think we have to again be specific. And so I think you can differentiate between hard contributions and soft contributions. And so I think the hard contributions are the policies he enacted, are the programs that he pushed forward. Some of these things that that are part of the legislative record that we can go back to, see who voted which way, and and we can over time measure the impact. And, and I think that's an important caveat, right? Like there, in a sense, even talking about his legacy is sort of a sort of a a hot take type of a thing. Not that we can't talk about it, but it takes years in many cases for uh, policies to marinate and be practiced before we actually see the long-term effects of it, which could be either good or bad. So something that looks very positive now could turn out to be extremely negative in 10, 15, 20 years, or something that looks uh, negative or somewhat questionable now can turn out to be extremely helpful, uh, particularly to, to the poor and the marginalized is what I'm thinking about. And so... And so in a sense, we've got to let these things play out if they have a chance to, uh, because I think the next administration is going to change a whole lot of, of what, what got started in these past eight years. So that's a whole other topic. But um, so those are some of the hard contributions. I think there are soft contributions that are important and we can't ignore either. And you touched on this too, Tyler, just about the, the very presence and, and the, the representation in the White House of not only an African-American president, but the entire first family, right? Um, wow. I mean, what 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 great role models and examples from sort of a, a moral and a character standpoint where you see a husband uh, uh, clearly, you know, loving his wife and, 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 and she loving him. But you see this man uh, lifting up a woman and, and her gifts and her abilities and then to have two daughters and have that example as a father. I mean, I think it, that's that's very important, not just for African-Americans to see, but for Americans to see uh, at all. So that's that's. So that's a that's something that that, you know, as far as we know now, you know, to 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 be under this level of scrutiny and to bear up under it with such dignity is exceptional, which leads to another point. Um, I think we we have to avoid the temptation to ignore or underestimate the unseen costs of being black in this space. Uh, the unseen costs of being black in this space. So that means as people are calling uh, his wife a a gorilla, uh, yeah. as they are questioning and an ape, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it feels dirty just to say, um, as they're calling his beloved this name, as they are calling him names, uh, racially motivated, as they are questioning his very Americanness because of the pigment of his skin in a lot of cases, to endure that and still be presidential 
still be dignified, still go above the belt publicly, that does that does not come without a cost. That does not come without immense stress, without long conversations late into the night that go way beyond the policy and the and the and the written job description of a president. That doesn't come without deep self doubt and 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 self talk to try to to reestablish your own personal. Uh, uh, dignity and and remember even uh, in in some small way that you are made in the image of God despite people uh, constantly trying to to tell you otherwise that cost I don't think we'll ever understand because none of us has been under this kind of scrutiny and race has been on the table uh, so so in that sense man he did a heck of a lot. Uh, and I, I I can't imagine what that was like for him, uh, and and to do it and to and to stay generally you know non non aggressive non combative didn't, didn't retaliate through a tweet or something like that that's amazing to me and and you want to talk about a co- contribution I think we got we got to weigh that kind of contribution very heavily um, absolutely well the the other thing is. I'm I'm more and more frustrated by the fact that in sort of conservative Christian circles, as African Americans, we constantly have to qualify any positive thing we say about President Obama. Right. right, right, right. You know what I'm talking about? It's like you have to preface I feel everything. Like I've been talking about it. I'm like, man, I don't even know if I should say this and should I, I say that? Look, if we don't say it, who who? Yes, yes. Who who's gonna say it if we don't? Um, it, it, it's one of these things where you have to constantly say, well, as a as a as a theologically conservative Christian, I didn't agree with all his policies, but and then dip your toe in the water of praising, you know, right. whether it be his character or the political things he'd done that have been helpful uh, from our perspective now. And and I just think, you know, do, do, do we have the same standard for others? Do we have the same standard for Republicans? Do we have the same standard for for white males uh, as 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 we're as we're constantly having to qualify uh, any sort of support? Um, for President Obama in any field, whether cultural or political or, or well, personal, just positive anything, just any, any positive, positive anything, analyzation of his family or just yes. any positive comment of his, of his dignity, his love uh, for his family, love for his kids. I mean, those things even were like, well, I didn't disagree with him, but you know, man, wow, he's a great family man. It looks right. like why right. do we constantly have to do that like do you guys not know that we can walk and chew gum at the same time like we can do both of these right. things simultaneously You're, while acknowledging his his good without qualification and then critiquing where necessary but that that's the idol that we've made of politics within religion and it goes you know across racial lines across the theological spectrum for sure but when your theological and spiritual orthodoxy is questioned because you support a certain candidate or even just aspects of a certain candidate i think we got to as christians take a long hard look at what we're valuing why we're valuing it and how we're valuing it right Absolutely. Absolutely. I think another thing, man, is just in general, the church needs to be very careful about pointing out a politician and say they haven't done anything for the black community. Um, because there's three fingers pointing back at the church. Like, what has the church done for Ooh. black and brown communities? All right. Doc. That's why I've started asking people like, OK, so 
you you're critiquing this politician, but what about in your area? Where are you serving the the underutilized? Where are you learning from African Americans in your own life? Come on, like, Doc. Where are you putting where are you laying down your life? If you're critiquing this man, this man lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. You live right next door to, to African Americans. You don't even know who they are. Mm. Or you said hi bye to them. Mm. Like, don't don't talk about him when you yourself haven't stepped outside of your context, outside of your zip code, to meet African Americans then. You know? I mean, yes. what, what are we why why are we why are we critiquing a politician when the church you got African Americans <laughs> that you could you could put in positions of power at your church, but they're too controversial for you to do that. <laughs> so you don't have the courage to even do that. And then you talk right. about him making widespread anyway. I'm 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 chilling. No, that's but for real. I just man. don't understand. I've seen it. Like I've seen because I've said positive things about a president, or because I've critiqued racial injustice in my context or in popular culture. I, people who have invited me to speak at their church don't invite me back, or they yep. they just rescind their invitation, or they said we should do this, and then they get pushed back, and then they don't do it anymore. I'm yep. like, where where does that come from? If we don't have the courage as Christians, as people who have the example of Jesus and the Holy Spirit on the inside of us to make incremental changes right where we live to reach out to black communities and understand them and relate to them more, why are we pointing fingers at a politician? Like, what are we, who are we, you know? You you are absolutely right. The, 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 The church has to take the log out of her own eye. Uh, in regard to race relations before we really start being being mad at a politician for what he did or didn't do. And just speaking from personal experience, uh, this election cycle, um, working within church circles has has caused me more emotional hurt and and spiritual anguish than pretty much anything I can remember. Um, yeah. At least while I've been been in public ministry uh, in regards to racial relations, yeah. uh, which, you know, like you're saying, invitations have been rescinded. Uh, people who used to talk to me don't talk to me. And, you know, I've gone back and I've listened and I wouldn't take anything back. Uh, but it is, is it is extremely telling to me how closely we have married religion and politics to where somebody who disagrees with you politically or says something that may be true but hard to hear about our alliance between religion and politics, right. that person becomes a pariah. Um, right. And that grieves me as a Christian, as a, as a church member, uh, because when, when, when we can't have fellowship across these human lines, whether that's race, uh, politics, economics, then, then we're actually losing the core of the gospel, which is reconciliation. How can anyone yeah. say he loves God but hates his brother? And so Absolutely. we need to take this seriously. And my hope and prayer is that um, with all the divisiveness that came out of the 2016 election cycle, that some churches at least would use this as an opportunity to probe their relationship with politics. And despite what you say from the pulpit, how does it play out in actual human relationships? Who are you inviting? What perspectives do they have on this issue that's not supposed to be 
a, a salvific issue. So you can vote Democrat or vote Republican, and it's not supposed to determine whether you go to heaven or hell. Uh, but do we really actually live that way? Um, this cycle has made me question that much more deeply and I'm more troubled coming out of it than going in. Um, which is not to say that there's not any hope and there's not any joy, but if we don't take this opportunity to take a long, hard look at where we are in terms of, of politics and, and, and power, uh, then, then we've missed an opportunity and we're going to continue to cause damage and harm. Right, man. That's so good, man. This, this is complex. I think that's the whole point. The whole point is that we're, we're not dealing with, with always, you know, you know, not, no pun intended, but black and white issues. Like we're not just dealing with these all good versus all bad politicians or all good versus all bad policies. We're dealing with a mix. And I've know, I know people who have been, who are black and some who are white who have been impacted positively, some who have been impacted negatively on both sides of the aisle. Like it's just, it's complex, man. I mean, and sometimes I think we have to remove ourselves a little bit from the individualization of looking at how does this affect me and mm. how does this make me feel uncomfortable to how does this benefit the whole of society? How does this benefit the people who live, you know, in a different area than I do? Mm. And that takes some gospel empathy to say, how is this impacting the least of these? And for some people that might be positive, for other people that might be negative. But our goal is that we wouldn't look at these things uncritically and mm. we wouldn't look at these things from the, the extremes, but that we would look at them in complex ways to say there was good and there was bad, just like any other presidency. There were positives and there were failures, but we don't uncritically dismiss. We don't just assume, you know, we don't turn on that particular news channel and listen to that particular talk radio person and visit that particular website and only hear their perspective. That's right. But that our black brothers and sisters that we do life with, their perspective is also valuable as well, that we should hear them listen to them, and really heed their concerns with empathy, with with understanding, recognizing that we might not have it all figured out yet. You know, that's what I hope that the church continues to do or starts doing in some cases. Um, and it's not going to get any more clear in the next mm. four to eight years. That's right. It's going to be right. even more contentious, even more difficult. But, you know, we have the spirit on the inside of us. We can walk through these things and we can address these things and disagree in love and care and grace and not presuming that someone is a heretic because they disagree with us. That's okay. Like they, they may see things from a different perspective, but hopefully our perspectives can be instructive to each other. Amen. Humility is the name of the game, boss. And we're wide open to critique. So if you have any critique for me and anything I said, send it to Jamar. Yeah, Adam no, I was going to say any critique goes okay. to Tyler. It's all good. Jay, you know, this is this is complex. We can't deal with it. We've talked for a while. We can't deal with it all in an hour or in one past the mic episode. It's it's complex. We pray that you would take everything that we've said with grace and with a little bit of mercy, recognizing our fallibility and recognize that we're not making broad pronouncements on how you should think we are giving you our opinion. Because as we said in previous episodes, we feel that it would be best to give you an unfiltered view into how right. some reformed African-Americans think, not all, but some. And so hopefully you have listened and received it in that spirit. I don't think there's a way to be honest and, and stay out of trouble, but we're trying. We're trying. Trying not to cause unnecessary offense. <laughs> all right, man. 
Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, we want you to subscribe to us on iTunes, also on the Satchel app as well. Rate and review us. That gives us prime position in those places. Please do that. Share this episode with your friends if it's safe to do so. Um, and you're not going to get in trouble. Share it with your friends and your social media feeds. Also, please reach out to us on Twitter. You can follow the show at underscore pass the mic. Also, Ran Network at Ran Network, as well as rannetwork.org. And we want you to join the Pass the Mic private Facebook group. Please do that. There are a lot of people there, cross-generational, cross-denominational, multi-ethnic, people who are working it out, man. Thousands of people working it out. We don't always see eye to eye, but we're, we're helping each other to see some things that we didn't see before. So thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you soon on the next Pass, Pass the, the Mic. mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.